you're uh, sitting around this afternoon and you're thinking to yourself, self, I just didn't get enough of Pastor Orville this morning. You could come on over to Cedar Heights Baptist Church, where they're having perspectives this year, where I will be teaching this afternoon on the history of missions. Good times. You can sit with free. It'll be a lot of fun. From 3.30 to 6.30, I go on about probably about 4.15 or so. I'm just saying, good times. No, you can't get it up. Probably remember Jim Jones, cult leader and mass murderer, founder of the People's Temple, right? And 1978 saw 909 people die when they literally drank the Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. Which is, of course, where the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid David Berg, maybe you've heard of him, I don't know. This guy's kind of a really whack job. He was the founder of this group called the Children of God, which was a child-abusing pedophile cult that still actually exists in parts of Europe and South America. And then you've probably heard of Vernon Howell, also known as David Koresh, right? Cult leader, apocalyptic preacher, who near the end there claimed to be a reincarnation of Jesus, who of course we know died in the fire when the ATF and the FBI raided the Branch Davidian complex in Waco, Texas. Now I bring these three guys up because of what they all have in common, these and many, many others. Something they all have in common. Do you have any idea what all three of these guys, besides the fact that the whack jobs, have in common? Anybody? They're false prophets. Antichrist, right? Yeah? They all started out as preachers in legitimate churches. They all started as ministers to legitimate denominations of Christianity. Jim Jones started as a Methodist preacher and then was an Assemblies of God preacher. Berg was a Methodist circuit rider and pastor in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. David Koresh grew up Southern Baptist and then was serving in a Seventh-day Adventist church before joining the Branch Davidians and eventually becoming their leader. The other thing they all have in common besides that, I mean all the things you guys said were true also, um, is they all developed a very warped theology of Jesus. They had not only wrong ideas about Jesus, but sometimes even eventually claimed they were reincarnations of Jesus or some other form of God in the flesh. Now this idea of bad theologies of Jesus is kind of the subject of the next section of 1 John that we're going to be in this morning. Now remember John, in the middle part of chapter 2, warned us that sin wants to turn our desires against us and to trap us with the desires of our flesh and the desires of our eyes and the pride of life. And these pursuits of worldliness are in direct opposition to God. And we can avoid falling prey to these sins by being sure to orient our lives around God's will, which we're reminded primarily comes to us in the scriptures, sometimes directly, sometimes through the application of principles and wisdom things we discussed last week. Following God is not meant to be a mystery. He's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to make it hard. But something that we can, with the Spirit's empowerment, do each day. Following God's will enables us then to win the battle against the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. But there's another threat. And this one is not waging war against us internally, like the 
sin works to disorder our desires. So all those other things are internal, right? There's an external, ongoing threat that requires diligence. Must you be led astray? It's the threat of false teachers and deceptive leaders. Look at what John writes in verses 18 through 24. <coughs> Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. You all have knowledge. That's a big difference. And you have all knowledge. You have all knowledge. I wish I had all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now the first thing he tells us here is to understand we're in this idea of the last hour. Children, it is the last hour. We've heard that the Antichrist is coming and the Antichrist has come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. He's reminding us about this idea of the last hour. Now, only John phrases the nature of our current age this way, this idea of last hour. But I think it's pretty clear that it's meant to be the equivalent of what the other authors of the New Testament refer to as, as the idea of the end of the age or, or the last days. For example, if you recall back in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Peter's given this message on the day of Pentecost, right? And he quotes chapter 2 of the book of Joel which talks about the Spirit pouring, being poured out in the last days. That's the word he used, last days. And Peter says, this is that. We're the last days. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1 that in the latter days, scoffers will come. And he's talking to Timothy about those types of things. Scoffers are coming. We've got plenty of scoffers. The writer of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 calls the time of Jesus these last days. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus coming. Now Jesus is the, the final fulfillment of things that were promised. He calls it these last days. The writers of the New Testament pretty much seem to all agree that from the time of Jesus' ascension to the present day, which some authors refer to as the church age, maybe you've heard that before, but this period is called the church age, it's the last days, the last hour, or the end time, or the end of time, whatever you want to call it. They expected the events of the final period of judgment and Jesus' return could begin any moment. Which explains how the Thessalonians in chapter 4 of Paul's letter to them could be alarmed and be worried that they'd already heard, or feel that they, Jesus already returned. They thought they'd heard Jesus already returned. They thought, no, one lesson to remember here is that we're always to be ready. Because we don't know when the end of the age will come upon us. Might be soon. Might not be. I don't know. But you know what? God hasn't left me alone. Nor am I afraid. 
And if I come to you someday claiming he has, you might want to review this sermon and go, wait a minute. Think the dude has gone off the deep end. Fortunately for you all, I don't like food. Might be soon, might not be. But we're always exhorted to be ready. John tells us then one of the signs of this last hour, this last days, is that there are people who would oppose Jesus, who would teach falsely about Jesus. And he uses the term, and he uses it two ways, the term antichrist. But he uses it in two different ways. So the first way he uses it is to remind us that there is one who is coming who I call the, the antichrist. Look at verse 18 again. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that antichrist is coming, singular, so now many antichrists have come. Now, this is the common way. If you have grown up in, in fairly conservative evangelical churches, this is the way most of us have come to understand the term Antichrist. Now, what's interesting, I think, about the whole thing is, I don't know if you realize this, but John is the only person in the Bible that uses the word Antichrist. No other author of Scripture actually uses this word. It occurs five times in John's writings, four of them in 1 John, one in 2 John. Only places where it occurs. In the first instance that we just read, referring to a specific individual, the other four refer to something else that we're going to talk about in a minute, and it's pretty much going to be the subject of the rest of the sermon. Jesus, Paul, Peter, Book of Revelation, writer of Hebrews, none of them use the word Antichrist. Yet John tells them, he says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. But wait a minute, nobody should that word. How can they have heard of it? But John's the only one who uses it. Now, we probably need to understand, John's letters are later writings than Paul or the three synoptic gospels. Paul's letters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, those Gospels, all occur, all written and circulated before John. Okay, John's pretty much the last writer in the So it's possible, most likely, that they've heard teaching similar over the years to what Paul wrote in places like, for example, 2 Thessalonians 2. Look what Paul writes. Now, 2 Thessalonians is written... 20, 30 years maybe before first John. So it's, it's out there, right? Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to God. So Paul writes about this guy who's called the man of lawlessness. And this man of lawlessness is going to do some really naughty things. He opposes God. And he fits the description of another person described in 
chapter 9, right? Who will profane the temple and cause what Daniel talks about as the abomination of desolation in the temple, which Jesus also talks about in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Who also happens to be the same person as the beast in Revelation 13. Now that alone would make a great sermon. But we're not going to go there. figure who is referred to in all these different ways but who fits the same description and this is the one we commonly call the Antichrist. You've heard that Antichrist is coming. The Antichrist. But it's not that Antichrist. The Antichrist. The man of lawlessness. The beast. The son of destruction. The man of perdition. The one who brings the abomination of desolation. And that stuff just rolls off you know, you can get why some of them old school preachers can just get sweating, right? You don't spit and talk about that stuff. Man, get some toe off. Down the ball. Sorry, It's not that guy that John is worried about right now. It's the ones who come before, the false teachers, who we also call the Antichrist, that he's worried about. Look at the other part of this verse about many Antichrists. Children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Wait a minute. Apparently in John's time, just as in our time, there were those who came who perverted the truth of Jesus and the gospel. In verse 22, what he describes him as, who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. In 2 John, in his second letter, in verse 7, he says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, deceivers, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. So these Antichrists, small a, not the Antichrist, deny fundamental truths about Jesus and seek to deceive others away from the truth. Things like, Jesus is the promised one of the Old Testament. He fulfills the Old Testament in other words, the Messiah. <clears throat> the Christ, the anointed one. They deny Jesus came in the flesh. In other words, denying that he died in our place for our sins. Antichrist is anyone who denies what the apostles of the Gospels teach about the that is the spirit of Antichrist. Small a. For example, Islam teaches that Jesus was indeed real and came in the flesh, but that he was simply a prophet in a line of prophets that ended with Muhammad. Mormonism teaches that Jesus is the Son of God, but in a born as a child of the Father sense. And that Lucifer is Jesus' brother. In fact, a quote from the Doctrine and Covenants, which is one of the sacred writings of Mormonism, Christ, the firstborn, was the mightiest of all the spirit children of the Father. Well, that's This is exactly how many cults like the People's Temple or the Branch of Indians get going. They form out of errant teachings about Jesus. 
Usually the cult founder claims to be a special revelation or be some sort of special incarnation of Jesus or have some special knowledge or got to see some gold plates in a cave that some angel had or whatever it happens to be. Maybe you guys remember Marshall Applewhite. I mean, okay, dude looks crazy from the start, right? He was the founder of the Heaven's Gate cult. And he wrote in September of 1995, this is him writing about himself, I, Jesus, Son of God, acknowledge on this date of September 25th, 1995, I am about to return to my Father's kingdom. This return requires that I prepare to lay down my borrowed human body in order to take up or re-enter my body belonging to the kingdom of God as I did approximately 2,000 years ago when I laid down the body that was about 33 years old in order to re-enter my body belonging to the kingdom of heaven.
After years in the ministry, he began to lose all theological confidence. After reading a series of books, he became convinced that the atheists have better arguments than believers. He has moved fully into atheist mode, yet he continues to lead his church in worship. How? You might ask. Well, Adam's going to answer that question for us, folks. Here's a quote from Adam. Here's how I'm handling my job on Sunday mornings. I see it as play acting. I see myself as taking on the role of the believer in a worship service and performing. These are not cult leaders. These are not wacky-eyed, I think I'm Jesus, you know, going to drink the Kool-Aid, wearing wacky sunglasses sort of guys. These are leaders that could be at the church down the road. Their people don't even realize that there's antichrists in their pulpit. But make no mistake, these are not harmlessly misguided seekers or something. They, John would tell you, are antichrist deceivers leading people to the pit of hell. The spirit of antichrist is the spirit that claims things that are not true about Jesus or attributes to itself things about Jesus or claims Jesus, or just denies everything about Jesus. It is always going to be a departure from orthodox teachings about Jesus, either about his person or his work. And they're not going to always be wide-eyed wackos with poison Kool-Aid that are fairly easy for anyone who's read the New Testament to spot. Sometimes they're just at the church down the street, and their own people are not discerning enough to understand that there's an Antichrist among them. And that is why it behooves us to listen to John's words about how to spot an antichrist. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are now all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you did not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son is the Father, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. So the first thing John tells us is that these sorts of false teachers are not going to stay long where the truth is taught. But John says they went out and they were not really part of the church that John was writing to. They went out and they can't stand where the church where the truth is really taught. False teachers do not want to be confronted with the truth. And they will react very badly when confronted. Just go confront one on Facebook or Twitter and watch what happens. Right? 
Because they really know the truth, but they're rejecting it like Wes, Daryl, and Adam. Did you notice how in their stories, the people in their churches didn't know what their own pastors really believed? That's one nice thing about here. It's really hard for me to hide what I really believe. I, got, I can't even hide how I feel most of the time. <laughs> you never have to wonder how I feel about something. Most of you, those of you who've been around long enough know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't ever have to worry about how I feel about something. I'll tell you, I got a problem with that. Yeah. They hide it. They're secretive. They keep their real beliefs secret. You know, and these of you guys, if you want a paycheck, I'm just going to go up there and play act. My work and I need a, need a paycheck. I'm a little play act. But the need for men to be a worship leader. Jesus loves you, man. When rising star preacher Rob Bell came out with his book Love Wins in 2011, which teased, anybody seen this book? Anybody heard of this book? Anybody heard of Rob Bell? Okay? The book teaches universalism. Everybody goes to heaven. I remember just seeing the t as soon as I saw the title, I was like, I bet you that teaches universalism. And I was right. Okay? He, at this point now, is completely apostatized. He doesn't believe anything's in the Bible, doesn't believe Jesus wrote what he did, doesn't believe anything. There's people out there still defending this apostasy. He was not of us, so he had to leave us. He's not in a church anymore. He's not. He's out doing his thing. That's the first thing. Just, just look at where it's going, and, and you see that they got, they got to form their own groups. They got to do this. Okay? So they control the messaging. Second, we need to learn to trust our spirit-empowered intuition. What do I mean by that? Well, in verses 20 and 21, when John is talking about us having the spirit, you know, and the anointing, and he will help us to serve the truth, we know the truth, and that sort of thing. That's what he's talking about. I call that spirit-empowered intuition. But we've got to be able to and willing to listen to the Spirit. Listening to our spiritual gut when we hear something that sounds kind of off. I mean, I would love it. Honestly, universalism is a really appealing idea. Because I would love it if eternal punishment was not a truth. That sounds great. I mean, like, I, I really wish it was true. The idea that all people eventually just made it into eternal life, that sounds great to me. Appeals to the part of me that, that loves people. But when I hear someone trying to use the scripture to justify universalism, my spiritual intuition kicks in because something just doesn't sit in my gut right there. This is just not right. Why would Jesus need to die if everyone's going to get to eternal life eventually? Why kill your own son for that? How could Jesus say no one comes to the Father except for me if somebody over in Saudi Arabia? who is following Allah is also going to get eternal love regardless. Somebody's going to come to the Father through, right? That's what universalism will teach. That, that he's also going to get eternal love. How's that going to work? How's that going to be just if everyone's just saved anyway? Third, we need to compare all the teachings what you've already learned and what the Bible says. Right? What are you talking about here? You know, let, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, he says. Okay, take your spirit-empowered intuition and 
Go read the Bible. You hear somebody teaching something that's in opposition to what you've heard in the past, or what has been basically Orthodox Christian teaching about Jesus or other scriptural truths for the last 2,000 years, you should ask questions. And if anybody tells you you shouldn't ask questions, you definitely should ask questions. Anybody that comes to you on any subject and says, you just you sh shouldn't question this. That is my first indication I should question this. Anybody tells me, I don't care who they are. If John MacArthur comes and tells me I shouldn't question this, I'm going to question this. Okay? Well, I remind us to continue in what we've already learned and heard. Now, I read a lot of scholarly books. Okay? Because I, li I like my mentor, Dave Steinhardt, and I read. That's how, that's how we read a theology book together and we talk about it and discuss it. But I'm very questioning when I do, because honestly, some of these scholars write some, some very crazy stuff. Okay, and these are, these are good people. They're not like trying to like tear people. They're not false teachers. They just write some stuff, and you've got to go, wow, that's kind of a wild theory. Well, here's my thing. If in, if in the 2,000 years of Christianity up until now, no one has thought of the particular idea that you suddenly have about the Bible, you should at least be wary of that. I'm going to be really suspicious. If anybody comes to me and says, I realize no one in 2,000 years has had the same thought. But look at me. Wait a minute. If you come and you tell me you have some sort of special revelation that nobody in 2,000 years has had, I'm going to look at you and be kind of like,
people are going to hear that and they're going to have questions and we need to have answers. I mean, if we don't have answers, who's going to have answers for them? If we don't. Third, as the time of Jesus' second coming gets closer, these sorts of deceivers are going to become more bold and more frequent. The New Testament is full of warnings that as things get closer to the end of the age, the deceivers will get worse and that people will accumulate teachers to satisfy their own desires and tickle their ears and all that sort of stuff. Why is prosperity gospel theology so popular worldwide? Do you realize prosperity gospel churches are some of the fastest growing churches? I'm using the word liberal. In the world? Because the prosperity gospel lets you have the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life and then claim that all those things are actually a blessing from God. That's the essence of the prosperity gospel. Unless you say, I got all this stuff, and it's all a blessing from God. Now, I have no idea how close we are at the end of the age. But even John, Paul, and Peter thought it was close. But how much closer are we now then? What does Paul say in Romans? Chapter 12, salvation here now, Romans verse 3. Closer. What I do know is that before the Antichrist, capital there's going to be plenty of lowercase Antichrist, small a, who are going to come to deceive people and lead people away from the true Savior, Jesus our Lord. But I also know, through God's Spirit and His Word, we have everything we need to avoid deception for the truth in the midst of the increasingly true gospel world. Let's pray. Father God, until that time when the final plan to the end is fully put in motion, your word tells us there's going to be deceivers and antichrists, people who want to lead other people away from the truth of Jesus and the death and resurrection. Help us to be people